That's good. I feel the uh, the caffeine coursing through my veins, and I'm ready to talk about plutonium. Let's do it. Oh, uh, did you have cold brew? No. Hello, listeners. I'm Brooks Brunson. And I'm Emery Parker. And we're here again each week to help you understand South Carolina better. This is Understand South Carolina. Uh, so this week we're here with reporter Thad Moore. Hi. Hello, Thad. To talk about a pretty darn important story. So here's the thing about Thad. He's known for two things. Uh, riding scooters and working on... Really, really complicated, but also super important stories that I always pretend like I understand. Then, like, we'll be at happy hour and a couple drinks in. I'm like, Thad, I really, I really don't, I really don't get it. Can you explain? That's true. I've been there. Yeah. uh, That's like, that's like, okay, here's the thing. I usually understand it way better. And then I get excited for the stories. It's always a lot of words like nuclear and. uh, So recently this happened and we were at Cuddy's and he told me about this project he's been working on, and it kind of blew my mind uh, because apparently, I didn't know this, but about uh, 12,000 kilograms of extremely dangerous nuclear material, which is called plutonium, um, which is used to trigger nuclear explosions. 12,000 kilograms of that is currently stored in South Carolina uh, near Aiken, So for context, the bomb that dropped over Nagasaki uh, at the end of World War II had six kilograms of plutonium, um, but actually only one of those reacted, and that in itself killed around 39,000 people. So that's one kilogram. We've got 12,000 kilograms of plutonium stored right here in South Carolina. Yeah. So, bad. Can you explain a little about, like, why? Why is there 12,000... Kilograms of plutonium here. Sure. So South Carolina has sort of a long history with plutonium, um, partly because we created some of it here. Um, so plutonium is basically, it's like a, almost exclusively a man-made substance that was created uh, during World War II, or first discovered during World War II uh, as part of our efforts to build a nuclear bomb. And... During the Cold War, we started to manufacture a lot of it, like more than 100 tons of it. And a lot of that happened at the Savannah River site, which is sort of a federal installation south of um, south of Aiken. It's sort of the size of like a small county. Like it's really big. But then the government also had, we, we produced it in a few places and it was being sort of manufactured, like sort of formatted into making bombs in some places. It was being sort of worked on in, uh, in laboratories in some places. So there was plutonium in like six or so different places around the country. So this is during the Cold War. So we were just kind of like getting prepared just in case and making just a, a hell of a lot of plutonium. Yeah. Just in case. That's Yeah, I mean, happening. it's the nuclear deterrent, right? It's right, like yeah. sort of mutually assured destruction. Yeah. So we, we created enough plutonium to do an enormous, enormous amount of damage. And, and we were building bombs with it. Um, the way plutonium is used in sort of modern nuclear weapons is it's sort of like the trigger. So you have sort of one explosion that happens, and then it triggers another even more powerful explosion. So anyway, they had like plutonium at six different sites around the country. And after the Cold War, it became clear like this is not a great situation. That's a really, really dangerous material. We should 
put it into fewer places, so we have fewer places to protect. So we like just made all this plutonium, and now we didn't do anything with it, and now we just gotta like figure out what to do with it. A lot of it is still in weapons. Like we still have like a very big stockpile of weapons, a big arsenal. But there's a lot of it that's not. Like it's just sort of like in a powder form, or it's still in a metal form. It's it's literally like a very it's like a sort of silver metal is how I understand it to be. Never seen it. I know that was one of the questions I would ask. I'm like, what does it look like? Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, you're not going to get very close to it ever. Which is good. Um, yeah, I don't think you want to. So the government had this plan. After the Cold War, we were like, we need to get rid of plutonium. Like, we need to come up with a way of getting rid of it because it lasts for a really, really, really long time, uh, which we can get into later. We, so we had this deal. We agreed with the Russians. We'll both get rid of a bunch of plutonium. And the plan was to basically take this plutonium and make it into uh, fuel for power plants, like nuclear power plants. And they were going to do that in South Carolina. And South Carolina wanted that work because it was going to be a big job creator. And also after after the Cold War ended, there was not really a clear future for the Savannah River site, which is, like I said, a really big installation. It's sort of like it's one of the biggest. I think it's the biggest employer in the state or at least one of the biggest. Definitely the biggest in the Aiken area. So it was a really big deal to the economy there. So, So our state's leaders wanted future jobs. And a future for the Savannah River site. So they said, yeah, we'll sign up to do the the job of making it into, f- like, basically taking plutonium and making fuel out of it. And when when was that? When did we? That was in, like, the late 90s, early 2000s. Okay. It came, it started coming here in 2002. In your story, you know, you talk a lot about, like, Jim Hodges was like, he was like, hell no. You know, that's not a direct quote. But that was kind of, he was not having it. Wouldn't that have been when he was governor? So. Yes. So who wanted it? So he he was not opposed to having plutonium here. And he wanted, I mean, he, like everyone else, wanted those jobs. His thing, we had an interview with him, and his thing was, we need a backup plan in case this fuel-making plant doesn't work, which is where we are now. The plant was too expensive, so the federal government walked away from it. And now we have a lot of plutonium without really a plan to so get rid of it. we have plutonium, but not, not, not jobs. Yes, and that was the situation that a lot of people feared at the outset. And there is technically a plan to get rid of it, but it's going to take the better part of like half a century. And it's they're going to end up violating, almost certainly violating the agreement that they had with the state, right? Because they're supposed to have it out by a certain time, and and they're just going to blow through that. Yes. So essentially, one of the ways that our leadership as a state tried to protect the state is in Congress, we basically got a lot of protections enshrined in law. And one of those was... If this thing doesn't work out, you guys have to move it out of South Carolina. We don't care where it goes, but it can't be here. And the current deadline for all of the plutonium to leave South Carolina is January 1st, 2022. It's two and a half years away. And almost certainly that's not going to happen because there's not really a place for it to go. It would take a really long time just to pack it up and move it. And shipping it, obviously, as you can imagine, it's a really sensitive thing. And I was going to say, like, there goes mm-hmm. a truck of plutonium down the highway. And they, do, they do truck it. They have <laughs> wow. this, like, crazy specialized truck. It's really, it's actually really fascinating, the defenses they have for it. But they don't, they don't move mm-hmm. a ton of it all at once. So it's going to take a while to get it out. So that's going to be an issue that we'll almost certainly see in court in two and a half years. And the future from there is very uncertain. Yeah, I mean, and it's worse that worse than just that there's not a place for it to go, but it's also a situation where basically every place that it could go actively does not want it. Yeah. Like every state where it could go besides <laughs> ours 
really does not want it to go there. Because who the hell would? I mean, right? Yeah. So so basically, I mean, th- there are there are other states that have plutonium. Like Texas has a lot yeah. of plutonium, and I don't I don't actually really know where they're thinking is. They have not been super vocal, but like as an example, we did ship some of or the government shipped some of it to Nevada. Some of South Carolina's plutonium. Right. So basically, there was another deadline that they had to meet. They didn't meet it. And then we went to court. The state went to court. And a judge said, yeah, you got to get a ton of plutonium, a metric ton of plutonium out of South Carolina. So before we derail too much, I'm (laughs) pretty sure that our listeners are probably like, okay, what does that mean that we have all of this here? Like, And Thad probably doesn't want me to mention this, but I'm going to anyway. Sorry, Thad. You know, I'm sure that what's coming to a lot of people's minds is the recent uh, HBO documentary, Chernobyl. Chernobyl. Or not documentary, it's a drama. That's true, my mistake. The recent HBO drama. Miniseries. Yeah, miniseries. Um, Anyway, is this dangerous? Is there a potential, is this a Chernobyl, could this be a Chernobyl situation? So that's sort of a hard question. So this is this is really in a lot of ways pretty different from Chernobyl. Um, Chernobyl was like an active reactor, right? It's completely different. Yeah, this is <laughs> this is material that's being stored in basically like thousands of steel drums in a former reactor that is not it's not actively being handled, which reduces your risk. Like, like it's not currently reacting like it was in Chernobyl. There is risk, obviously, because this is like a really dangerous. Uh, substance where if you put enough of it together, like it will start to react with itself. The risk is, could something happen where the building it's in is compromised and the can, the sort of the drums that it, it's in somehow rupture and then it, it it's released? That's that's where the danger lies. Like if there was a big fire or if there was like a an earthquake, especially like a bigger than expected earthquake, that could be problematic. But it's really fundamentally different than Chernobyl. Obviously, that highlights a lot of the risks of what nuclear material can do and what it is. But it's not as though this is currently being used like in a reactor or it's actively being handled. Some of it is being handled because they're sort of diluting it down to ship away. But that is a different sort of process than what happened in Russia yeah. at that point. Well, the USSR. so let's let's get into some of the the dangers that we know about. But first, so the reason why we know about them and the reason why we're talking about this now is that our paper, in addition to the Aiken Standard, got a hold of some documents that give us an insight into the thinking behind the you know risk mitigation at this facility. So, Thad, what what did we learn from these documents? Right. So we essentially we we've seen planning documents for what the government is what options it's looking at for storing this material along with actually other materials. So like it partly deals with how do we store nuclear weapons and parts for weapons. And the the upshot of that, really to boil it down, is that for this to go anywhere, it's going to take a pretty long time. Essentially, you'd need to either renovate or build a new building somewhere else in the country and then take probably a decade just to Pack up the material in South Carolina. It's sort of it's in containers, but you need to make sure they're good to go, and then ship it away. So altogether, you're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 years, and that's just to move it, not to process it, just to take it and get it out. So that's what we learned from that. But then it sort of prompted us to look at other reports on the conditions in which the the plutonium is stored. Right. So there's this really obscure sort of watchdog type advisory agency. In Washington that oversees 
all of our defense nuclear facilities. So basically facilities dealing with nuclear weapons. And they have identified over time like a series of concerns about the building that this plutonium is stored in in South Carolina because it's a 65-year-old building. It was not designed originally for storage. It was retrofitted to handle storage, but it was a reactor that created plutonium during the Cold War. Um, well, that's, that's reassuring. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, oh it, it goes on. Just wait. Yeah. So, so there have been a number of issues that have come up. Like there were a few years ago, some concrete panels fell off of the, like a wall, leaving a big hole in the wall of the building because like these panels weren't rated for strong winds. And I guess strong winds came in. There's not a lot of detail that's released. We just sort of know like the very high level thing that happened. There are issues like there are some corroding pipes that could, you know, release water a bunch of places. There are, um, there have been issues with like some workers were walking through one day and they saw like a metal rod sticking out of the wall and somebody they called and some help and they were like, oh, that looks like it might be sort of like our earthquake, our seismic um, tie down essentially. So, you know, earthquake uh, reinforcement, if you will. So it's showing its age. Um, there have been issues where um, once like a transformer blew, it was like a 60 year old transformer sort of blew out of commission and the whole facility was without power for three hours. Um, and the, the workers there didn't even have like consistent phone access or radio access. So right. that's great. Like, they were, they had sort of some issues. It sounds like getting sort of word out. So there's some issues like that. Like this is an old building. It's definitely got some issues. We've looked at other planning documents that suggest that, as of at least a few years ago, it's going to cost $63 million just to like catch up on maintenance in this building. And we're going to be relying on it for 20 plus years, depending on what route the government takes. So like, let's say there's a forest fire or something and this building caught on fire. I mean, I would assume that there are some, I mean, it, it's fireproof in some ways. Right. So, so they've, they've done some <laughs> things. Um, there were concerns raised about fires like 15 years ago. And one of the things they did was they took out Anything like that was combustible and not really like needed for the mission, like they took it out. So like old cables and that kind of thing, they pulled out. So they tried to like limit how much stuff could catch fire. But more recently, there have been concerns raised about what would happen if there were somehow a fire that broke out, right? So um, the like the water tanks that they rely on are fairly old and like evidently there's sediment building up in the bottom bottom of them and like the lining was degrading um the way like the water mains are laid out in this part of the savannah river site are basically in straight lines so like let's say like a, a main breaks like that happens in the city sometimes and you have to like boil your water or whatever like if that happened like there's no redundant path for the water to get there so it might be hard to get water there um Great. And also there there was awesome. a concern raised just like two years ago internally to the, the Department of Energy where they were concerned that firefighters would have to go in in person and like carry basically um, hoses like full, like a few hundred feet, depending on where a fire happened, by hand. They'd have to navigate through all these different hallways and doorways and stairways. See, and that does sound like a Chernobyl so yeah, situation. That, that was, that was like, when I was happens. reading the story. Yeah, that was like immediately where my mind went. I mean, just having been primed watching that yeah, series I mean, we all in the last week. It, so, but. you know, <laughs> we're going to break it up, Thad. <laughs> so, so, I mean, obviously, like the, the thing that's it, what's difficult about like this story and the prospect of a fire, right, is it's all pretty hypothetical. We don't know what would happen because it has not happened. 
But this is a concern that was raised, that it would be difficult to carry the hose that far and you'd have to sort of navigate potentially contaminated air depending on what's burning and what's been released. So there there are some concerns. I mean, I'm not trying to downplay them. Um, it's just not a – Chernobyl is not like an immediate yeah. analog to this situation. Yeah, and, uh, you know, okay, I'm going to make another comparison, but I want to also preface it by saying it's it's a similar situation where what this really kind of reminded me of is more like the Fukushima disaster. And, again, I want to just be absolutely clear up at the offset where Fukushima was, again, an active reactor. The kind of disaster there that happened was a meltdown. We're not talking about a reactor here. There's no risk of, like, a meltdown occurring where the worst case scenario is basically like a release of radioactive material, which would be bad, but it would never, like, we're not talking about anything that could possibly be at like the scale of Chernobyl or Fukushima. But that being said, uh, what it does remind me of is the the fact that, you know, because after Fukushima happened, there was obviously a lot of people wondering like, well, how does this happen? Because, you know, Japan has earthquakes, they have tsunamis. Surely people thought about this. And in fact, they did. And one of the things that people, you know, discovered after the fact was that, yeah, there were a lot of people raising red flags about these possibilities, saying, you know, hey, we we built this thing to handle like one level of tsunami, but actually, you know, it's possible that a tsunami higher than that could happen. And that happened more than once, actually. The people that operated the the facility were warned in 2000 about this. They were warned in 2004 about this, they were warned again in 2004 about this, and they were warned again in 2008 about this. And in every time, in every case, when they got these warnings, they basically decided, well, you know, that's unproven, that's a worst case scenario, and it's just probably not going to happen. You know, they, they would they would basically be like, yeah, we, we, we know we need to do something, but dot, dot, dot. And then the worst case scenario happens, and... You see what happens. So that's, I think that's what is a little bit concerning about it, you know? Yeah, because we also don't know what could happen, you know? Yeah, and so so part of the part of the way the sort of government works with these materials is that they do a lot of sort of analysis of what are the worst case scenarios. And obviously it's, you know, any risk assessment is somewhat hypothetical. Like you don't really know what could happen with. Yeah, I mean, you make your best guesses. Right, about... yeah, and, and obviously like they do really detailed analysis, but. I mean, one of the one of the like, sort of like the worst case scenario that they identify that would cause radioactive material to be released is essentially if there is a worse than expected. So like they designed the building or the the retrofit to handle like a certain size earthquake. So if there was a worse than expected earthquake and then a fire subsequently, then then that would be like the then worst case be scenario. Screwed. <laughs> yeah. Well, so and and I should say too, like the other thing that makes this different than like a Chernobyl is like there's not like a city right next door. Yeah. There are communities nearby. Like Barnwell's not that far away. Aiken is like 25 miles Allendale. away. Allendale. Allendale's nearby. That's where my family's from. Yeah. So I mean, there there are communities nearby, but this is toward the middle of the site, so it's probably at least it would... eight miles away from anyone. But even so, I mean. You know, I, I can't remember specifically, but Chernobyl, I mean, they were able to, like, fix it so it didn't, like, get all the way to Germany and stuff. But, I mean, these things can, like, fire, like, a fire can actually be pretty widespread. I mean, even though there's not, a like, a big town or city right next to the site, it's, you know, I, I would think we would even, if there were an earthquake fire situation, which, you know, again, that's very uh, unlikely. Yeah. I feel like Charleston would be affected, though. We're not that far. 
And the stuff, tra- I mean, you know, from my understanding, which in my understanding kind of begins and ends at the HBO drama. Yeah, I mean, but- part, part of it, like, part of my understanding of this, I don't I don't know that Charleston would specifically be at risk, but my, my understanding is essentially that plutonium as, like, a heavy metal, it could sort of get into the air, but it's uh, unlikely okay. to travel as far because of its weight. That's my high-level understanding of it. The point, though, is what's probably most likely at stake is one, people work on the site, like a lot of people work out there, and two, um, it doesn't take a lot of plutonium to create like a really bad environmental mess. So if, let's say, a kilogram or two were somehow released in some way into the woods around the Savannah River site, it would be a really expensive and a really long-term environmental cleanup. Like it's been described as a potential environmental crisis, it would become a really long-term problem. And already, like there are there are tanks of nuclear waste from when they were producing material at the Savannah River site, and that's already b- described as probably the state's biggest environmental problem. Is that there's all this chemical, these chemicals in uh, tanks, and they're sort of leaching out in some places, and like they're trying to get it under control, and they've made a lot of progress, but. It's like a really long-term problem, and that's what's really at stake. Dad, when I, when I was talking about this with you earlier, um, we were kind of going through some of these these risks. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think I was asking you uh, if they, like, what form the plutonium is in, just because, um, you know, we were talking about fire risk, and the thing about plutonium is, like, it's just, it's hot. Like, it wants to catch on fire, actually, just, like, by itself. Good. It, um, yeah, just like sitting there, it would, like, it would love to just... <laughs> Catch on fire. Um, so, you, and then you mentioned, you know, well, they're very proud of of these vessels that they that they store them in. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned something about beetles getting into them. What was that? Yeah, what? that's that's sort of an issue that's been studied. So, essentially, the the way this stuff is stored is it's in like a small metal can. Um, it's been described to me as like being a little bit bigger than like a big soup can. Like if you were thinking of like maybe. You know those big, like, yam cans at the grocery okay, store? yeah. Like, I think a little bit bigger than that. They put some plutonium in there, and then that's sort of welded shut and put into, um, like, fiberboard and lead casing. I think I've got this right. And then it goes into this really specialized steel drum that's, like, you know, uh, sealed tight. And that's how, that's how they transport this stuff. So it's designed to handle, like, a really bad traffic accident or something like that. Or like a terrorist attack or something to that effect. So that's that's why they're stored in those containers because they're like very robust. Um, they weren't designed initially for long-term storage, uh, and obviously the timeline for planned storage has extended, and that's a concern. The government has studied it, and they say that they're confident that um, that they'll be safe over the long term. Although obviously we haven't gotten to the long term, so we don't really know. But one issue that did come up was there are a few containers, at least, where they found beetles sort of like eating away at the fiberboard inside. And I'm not really sure how they got there and or how widespread it is, because one of the sort of issues with this case in particular is they can't open all of the containers. It's like they're not able to inspect all of them all the time. They inspect a few at random to sort of make sure like, okay, like things are going the way we expect. But it's not they're not looking into every container. Because they don't really have the capability to do that. So but yeah, there were beetles. Yeah, in some I, of them. I mean, I'm just, I don't love the idea that there are beetles getting into these. Could the beetles not die? Wait, apparently not. Those things can survive anything. I don't. I don't know about beetles. <laughs> 
Sorry, now I'm just kind of like <laughs> picturing this beetle and can of yams situation. I'm thinking about how I just was on 95 last weekend and like every mile there's like another billboard for canned vegetables. It'd be funny. Yeah, McCall like, Farms, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It'd be kind of funny if we changed it to like all natural plutonium. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. SC ground. Get it here first. It is SC ground. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, explicitly ground not natural though. Certified. Yeah. Well, yeah. Dad, is there is is there anything else? Yeah, I mean, I guess we we talked a little bit like about like the risks, like the that worst case scenario. Right. The, if I remember the numbers right, like the specific estimate for the likelihood of that occurring, like the bigger than expected earthquake plus fire, is one in two million per year. And I think that's sort of a a point that's worth making is all of these issues with nuclear materials and this problem that we've created. It's all about essentially assessing risk. And that's part of the point I think that we're trying to get across with like some of the issues that have been happening with the building. Like essentially the government has assessed in its estimation that the material will be safe there, even though it's an aging building, they can take care of it. But one, that it's going to require funding to do that, to make sure that we're keeping up with maintenance on it and keeping that building safe. And then two, it's sort of like what this is sort of a bigger sort of philosophical and political question ultimately is what kind of risk are we willing to accept with these materials? I mean, they were designed or they were created to basically be dangerous, right? So what kind of risk are we willing to accept with this really long-term dilemma that that we've created? And that's, I mean, that's ultimately going to be a question for Congress to decide, like, how much funding is it worth to put into this building or to building a dedicated facility? Like, they considered at one point building a dedicated storage facility designed for storing plutonium and other materials like it. And they decided not to do that because they figured it's too expensive. We're already putting a lot of money into this program to make fuel out of uh, plutonium. And as long as that works, we're not going to need another storage building anyway. Well, obviously, it didn't work. And I think we're sort of at a turning point as a result as a country where we have to decide what are we going to do with this material? How long are we going to take to do it? Like one other thing is they think it's going to take something in the neighborhood of like 40 years to to process all this plutonium and get it buried basically in the desert in New Mexico. Like that's their plan is to basically blend it with inert material and then bury it underground to basically be entombed in salt forever. We'll see what Nevada has to say about that though. New Mexico. Or New Mexico. Yeah. But Nevada has thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> um, as another place that might be a repository one day for nuclear waste. So, like, you could do it faster, in theory, if you had more people and more investment in the infrastructure to do this diluting process. The question is, how much are we willing to pay? And that ultimately comes down to how much risk are we willing to accept? Like, that that's sort of a bigger question that is bigger than you know, this story or this building or what's happening in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. It's sort of, we created this 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 dilemma and this, this sort of issue that we have to resolve as a country where we created this really dangerous material that's really hard to deal with and lasts for a really long time. And how much will do we have to deal with it? That's sort of a bigger question that I'm really fascinated by. But mm-hmm. and to the point of how long it lasts, we didn't really get into yeah, this. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was about to. I was about to mention that because um, I think I think like that's one last thing that I th- just thought was super yeah. super interesting about this is right. Okay, so we we've had plutonium for about eighty years. Mm-hmm. Um, Seventy nine. Yeah, it is going to take about two hundred and forty thousand years right. for this stuff to become inert. So that means like you put it in the ground and 
this space, wherever you put it, it's going to remain dangerous for, like, to give you context, humans have existed as a species for about that amount of time, for yeah, about, about 300,000 like 300, years. Yeah, yeah I mean, like, we started farming about 12,000 years ago, right? So you're talking about something that is orders of magnitude longer than human civilization has e even existed. And it's going to be a risk for anybody in the future. And and we, Thad and I were, were kind of nerding out about this a minute ago before we came in here. But that does that leads to to one really interesting problem, which is like, well, imagine uh, like a hundred thousand years from now, some like society discovers these um, facilities, and they're like archaeologists or whatever. Oh, are like oh what damn, is, what that'd is, be bad. What is this? Yeah, like what is this? And the problem, the is this problem, yams? this is this is just a big problem, right? I mean, like what would what would you do? Like if if people don't speak English or they've forgotten what plutonium is or whatever. Like, how would you explain to people, this is a bad place. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not a temple. It's not, like, something. It's not commemorating anything. There's nothing here for you to, like, learn. It's not a tourist spot. Just stay away from it. It's dangerous. But, you know... How, how would how would you how would you get that message into the future? You know, yeah. I mean, it's still an open question. But they, there was this really interesting study. I think it was in the '80s, um, dealing with this facility in New Mexico, like the salt mine, where they want to take all of this stuff to eventually. Um, where they were like, "How do we convey this message?" They they got a bunch of like science fiction writers and you know experts in different fields, like you know materials, like what materials could last for that many years to, to get this message message across, and like what kind of technology might people have in however long. And they set a deadline of 10,000 years because they figured if they gave them the actual amount of time that this stuff might be dangerous for, it would just like be too much for like our brains to handle. Mm -hmm. And like, like Carl Sagan like wrote a letter sort of contributing his thoughts. But one of the issues they were like, what if they built a big, they called it like a field of thorns. They yeah. wanted to build these like concrete thorn, like a thorn, like a briar. Try to make like the hundred land look feet, scary. Make basically. it look scary. Make it like a yeah. hundred feet tall. But then they're like, "Well, what if it became like a tourist destination? Yeah, like, just be like, what if oh, it became like Stonehenge? That looks that looks awesome. What is that? And then yeah, some, it would be like Stonehenge. Some enterprising yeah. archaeologist is like, "Well, we got to look into that. They would just be like, "Why did they build this? Yeah, this we should so go bizarre. down. We got to yeah. dig and see what's down right. there. Right. I think my favorite idea was the uh, the atomic priesthood. the The idea is basically they like that kind of makes sense. They they thought. I mean, human society has only been around for a few thousand years, so you don't really have a lot of track record to go, to go on. But what has survived, and that's religion, and you look at, like, the Catholic Church, that has existed now for about 2,000 years. So that's pretty. That's a pretty long period of time. So the thinking is, well, what if you, like, made a religion around fearing <laughs> nuclear materials? Oh, my could gosh. You, <laughs> right. Could that survive for thousands of years, you know? I, 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 that's it, guys. I am finding that religion. That is, that is, Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what's interesting. It's a wild <laughs> idea, but yeah, it's a great <laughs> but, idea. But that's, that's what's so interesting about these issues in general, like like sort of the the persistence of these materials. I mean, I, I think that it's a little bit out of like the public consciousness, like post Cold War. Like, right. we don't we're not doing like drills in school on what would you do in a nuclear attack. I mean, obviously, people think about it now with like, you know North Korea making sort of the noise they're making yeah, in we, Iran. There was like a moment there we were kind of. Yeah, yeah like, wrong, you yeah. know, we sort of think about what the capabilities of nuclear weapons again and what they can do. But I think it's fallen somewhat out of the public consciousness. Yeah. Um, yeah I'm scared of a it, lot of other, other things right, yeah, that, I mean, you it, know? It, like, I think, like, we're of a generation that didn't really grow up with that fear. And I think what's so interesting about it is, yeah, it, I, is I, still, I it still exists as, like, a kind of an existential question for our, our civilization. 
like, what do we do with these materials? And I think that's what's so fascinating about this. Like, it is bigger than than any of us or really all of us. Like, it, it, it'll outlast everybody. It's just such an interesting question. And one of the paradoxes, I think, of this, and this was sort of a point raised in this really interesting book called Plutonium uh, by Jeremy Bernstein. Have you read it? I have. <laughs> um, but he, he makes this point, and he mentions sort of like the processing plans in South Carolina at the very end of the book. And part of the dilemma is we spent, I mean, it was expensive to create plutonium, right? Like it cost however many millions of dollars, but it's going to ultimately one day cost us billions to deal with. Like mm-hmm. it is more expensive to get rid of than to create, and it'll outlast everybody that had anything to do with it. Like it's, it is such an interesting and like profound problem that we have, and it happens to live here for right now. Wow. Oh. Um, as you guys can tell, you guys being the listeners, Thad here, he knows a lot about this stuff and he loves nerding out about this stuff. And we really appreciate him being on the show. You should read his story because it's really good and it's really important. Might and make you mad. Might make you a little bit scared. Yep. Hopefully not too scared, but... But anyway, uh, you can find, we will make sure that Thad's article is... And a prominent spot on our landing page, postandcourier.com slash understand SC. Please read the story. And uh, yeah, keep uh, checking back. Check it back with Dad. Check in with Dad because he's going to keep covering this issue. He's got more stories on the uh, facility to come in coming months. Mm-hmm. Like and subscribe to Thad. Like yeah. and subscribe to Thad. <laughs> and the Post and Courier. And the, and, no, well. uh, get a digital subscription to the Post and Courier. Please. Mm-hmm. Get a digital subscription to that via help the Post us, and Courier. Help us That'll work. get paid. Yeah. Please pay us. Hey, we need money. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, th- thanks for having me. And, and uh, thank you for entertaining my nuclear rants. I, I love happy hours. When, when that Great gets, parties. That gets nerdy. It is it's some of the best. Hey, uh, Emery. Yeah. Uh, do you understand South Carolina better? Yeah, definitely. Uh, this whole story was a big eye opener for me. I um, I just I had no idea that how like it, basically it seems like the state kind of got screwed, you know, politically in this sense. And I I just really wasn't following that, so I was surprised. I was a little angry about it actually. You said you were going to get rid of it, and that was not going to happen. <laughs> well, it was going to happen until it wasn't. So I feel like I do, from reading the story, I understand South Carolina better. But from this conversation, I feel like I understand or don't understand my existence. More like, I, I think like the rest of my work day, I'm just going to be like thinking about nuclearness. I have an idea. We should, we should start a religion that advocates for people to get digital subscriptions. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Be scared. <laughs> fear, fear the nuclear and get digital subscriptions. And, and yeah, support local journalism. Yeah. Very specific, yeah. Uh, very specific ideology. Yeah. Well, that's what people need in these complicated times to add. All right. Till next week, folks. Have a good day or night or whatever time you're listening to this. Bye. Bye. <laughs> all right. And that's all. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier in Charleston. Our theme song is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music by searching for Billy, that's with an I-E, Fountain, on Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can get in touch with us by emailing understandsc at postandcourier.com, or, of course, you can tweet at us with any questions or comments. 
And if you're a fan of the show, please take a second to like us and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast Store. See y'all later. Later.